If you would please open your Bibles to Romans 13. Well, we're continuing our study of the book of Romans, and uh, we just got back into it last week, and if some of you have been away for a while and say, we're only in chapter 13, yeah, well, we took a break for a number of other things as well, but today we come to the end of a chapter uh, where Paul had been writing to us about the necessity of submitting to governing authorities, and we looked last week at some very practical and uh, personal principles Uh, even some applications, like right now, how does that work? And as Paul continues that thought and moves it forward, uh, he begins in verse 8, and I want you to follow along now as I read this portion, with some additional uh, instruction, and he notice how he continues to tie it back to things that we have already learned, and ultimately will tie it back to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not simply a moral code that we follow. It's not a list of stuff you do and stuff you avoid. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ, and because of that vital and personal union with him, that in turn is what translates into a lifestyle. And I don't want you to miss that, because it's easy, even in a passage like this, where there are some very clear commands, like do this and don't do that. If you just focus on those things and untether them from, from your relationship with Jesus Christ, you begin to lose your way. And it opens the door to ugly legalism. It opens the door to confusion and misunderstanding and all these aberrant expressions, uh, even of our faith. And the Lord doesn't want that to happen. So Paul will remind us of that, and I want to set that before you. Follow along as I read these uh, few verses here, Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, as we open your word again this Lord's Day, We have hope and expectation. We have great needs that are ever before us. But this word is alive and powerful. And as you have revealed it to be a word that penetrates to the deepest recesses where soul and spirit meet. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts that terrifies some of us because we keep hidden in the secret places of our souls, things that we would not want anyone to know, but they are already known to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would reveal those things to us that keep us from being the people you desire us to be, that prevent us from experiencing the rich blessing of relationship and intimate fellowship with our living Savior, with the Spirit, with you as our God and Father. Expose those things that we may confess them and turn our backs on them, and turn to you, the living God. We pray that you would give us humble hearts, willing spirits, 
submissive souls, that whatever you command of us, we would eagerly do. Whatever you teach us, we would eagerly believe. Whatever you show us about yourself, that we would grasp by faith, embracing you in the fullness of your glory, even as you in great grace and mercy have embraced us. What a marvelous gift Christ is. What a marvelous gift the gospel is. What a marvelous gift life in Jesus is. So come, Holy Spirit. Come and teach, instruct, heal, restore, convict, and cleanse. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Isn't it interesting that Paul describes love as a debt, in one sense that can never be fully repaid, will always be indebted. He's used this language previously uh, back in chapter 8, verse 12, when he said, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Remember that glorious section, Romans 5 through 8, where Paul just beautifully and powerfully unpack the gospel for us. And one of the great truths there is that those who come in faith have genuinely been delivered from the slavery that is sin. So you're no longer enslaved to sin. You're, you're free to live in a different way, but you are a debtor having been sla- freed from that slavery. Who are we indebted to? Well, in that context, he's talking about the Spirit of God. You were indwelt by sin at one time, but now the Spirit comes to dwell. So it's a different kind of debt. He's actually going to speak of a debt we owe to one another when we get to chapter 15. And he says, the English word we use there, which is the same term being translated right in front of us here, is that we are obligated to bear with the failings of the weak. And we'll get there in time. So the Christian life is a life of debt, but it's a different kind of debt. It's not a debt of sin that we're trying to work off and show to God that we're really you know, good people now and we love him and we're worthy of his attention and blessing. No, we're not indebted in that way. We're indebted in love. Even as Andrew mentioned earlier, and we, we didn't plan this little part of the dialogue. I mean, he has an idea where we're going. We talk about this stuff you know, early in the week, usually, sometimes. But he said, we love him because he first loved us. That's the debt we're talking about here. So Paul says, in in a manner of speaking, love is a debt we can never fully repay. And so we need to ask, well, who am I obligated to? Well, first, let's not lose sight of the fact that it's the Lord for all that he's done for us. But we really are indebted to one another because God has poured his love into our hearts. And that's what positions us now to love other people freely. God loved us out of grace. We love one another out of grace, right? But now look at the next phrase because he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then verse nine, he says very simply, for the commandments, and he, and he kind of pulls them randomly. You know, he actually starts with commandment number seven, then he goes to six, skips nine, or, or I should say, then goes to eight, skips nine, and then finishes with 10. Uh, But this is one of those sweet reminders to me that you don't have to quote the word of God word for word to still get the heart of what the spirit of God is trying to say. And the spirit inspires Paul to add that little phrase on the other end, and any other commandment. Because he knows that some of us by nature are legalists. And we look at those four stated commands and go, oh, well, that's it. No, that's not it. That's not it. There's so much more to it. 
And he says, any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18, as Jesus did. It's recorded back in Matthew 22, verse 37, where Jesus says to the disciples and others who were gathered there, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I want to pause right here. I just said a moment ago, because we tend to be legalists. And, and that's because we look at the law, I think, in an incorrect and an immature way. We look at it as if, if it's some kind of to-do list. Do these 10 things or avoid these 10 things, and you're good with God. And that's not actually the heart of the law. You see, the Christian life is not a matter of, well, just tell me what to do and then I become a, a Christian you know, through my obedience or my law-keeping. Now, the law is actually a framework of understanding that opens new worlds to us. And I was thinking of, as we come into verse 10, I mean, Paul states very simply, love does no wrong to a neighbor. You see, that's because love is the expression of good towards others. Parenting is challenging, isn't it? And when your kids are younger, they, because they think in concrete terms, it gives rise to a, a kind of uh, uh, naive and sometimes, frankly, humorous legalism. And you say to your child, do not poke your brother. And no, long, no sooner do you say, don't poke your brother, you, you know, look in the rearview mirror and they're in the backseat punching each other. And you say, I told you, don't poke your brother. And one son says, I didn't poke him. I punched him. And, and as a parent, you're exasperated because your, ma- your mature, you know, big world view knows that what you actually said really did address punching, but, you know, this little wicked pagan <laughs> is, is bound by immature thinking and sinful thinking, and they take you literally. All you said was don't poke. And there's a spirit of your law, isn't there? And, and, and you're not going to sit in the front seat, even though some children push you in this way. So, okay, so I can't poke and I can't punch. And you start trying to think of all the other options that you know are entering that child's, you know, again, sin-dominated mind of, of what might be legal. And you try to bring them back to the principal or a teenage child where you say, hey, can you take out the trash? Sure, Dad. Five hours later, you come back and see the trash is still in the can by the you know, kitchen counter. You're like, I thought I asked you to take out the trash. And your child looks at you and says, you did, and I will, on Tuesday. <laughs> and you're like, it's Saturday. That's not the spirit of the law. We had friends who were ahead of us in the parenting game by a number of years, and, and we thought this was just gold wisdom. I passed it along. We've shared it with some of you before, but they, they had a rule in their household with their kids. They called it the mad, sad, bad rule. You don't do anything, you know, first of all, starting here with your siblings, but even beyond that, you don't do anything that makes another person mad or sad or bad. And, you know, little kids can understand that. Like, they can grasp that. And that begins to expand the thinking and even mature the thinking where you recognize the very thing that Paul is talking about here. Love doesn't do wrong to its neighbor. In a sense, this is Paul's mad, sad, bad rule. 
And if you only limited to the four commands that he, he gave, you'll never step into the wonderful world of actually being able to love people in a significant and meaningful way. Imagine a world where no one ever did anything bad or evil. Because that's the kind of world that God designed initially. We're the ones who messed it up. And isn't it interesting that something that is, from our perspective, so uh, innocuous, innocuous and so uh, small could have shattered what God created? I mean, eating, eating one kind of fruit, really? Yeah, but it was the one thing that God said, don't do this. He'd give them a garden full. I mean, just overflowing with delicious, nutritious food options. What did they obsess about? The one thing that God said, not this one. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. One author writes, certainly the last five sins forbidden in the Ten Commandments harm people. Murder robs them of their life. Adultery of their home and honor. Theft of their property. False witness of their good name. Covetousness robs society of the ideals of simplicity and contentment. And that last one was very challenging for me. Covetousness. We don't think of that as a sin against our fellow neighbor, but it really is. So our God and Father is seeking to establish a different kind of ethic and atmosphere in his household, if we can refer to the church as God's household, and I think we can. His law is a reflection of his purpose and design for a world of love. So positively, we are commanded to love our neighbor. Negatively, do not harm your neighbor. Don't do stuff that makes him mad, sad, or bad. A great cross-reference, we won't take time there, but just note this. If you haven't read through 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, recently you should because it tells us what love is, what it is not, what love does, and what it does not do. Again, it just, it just puts a little more flesh on the command to love one another. Now, look at verse 11 with me, because we do shift gears a little bit here. It's not an entirely new thought. I do think there are some important connections for us here, but the Lord's been saying, love, uh, love fulfills the law, so I want you to love one another. But now, through Paul, he says to us, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now, this, this whole section uh, begins to evoke some really helpful images for us of life. What does he mean besides this, you know the time? Well, the next phrase helps you understand it, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep and, and to get out of that sleepy state. You can't afford to remain asleep with all that's going on and with respect to what is coming. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Did, did that thought occur to you at any point in this past week? Some days are so hard that you're just like, Lord, I'm glad that's done. I don't know what good could have possibly come from that, but at least I'm one day closer to eternity and to you. And that's true. We're seven days closer to seeing Jesus than the last time we gathered for worship. Amen. But there's more to this. Look at verse 12 than just, hey, Jesus is returning, so wake up and look forward to him. No, look at verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now, there's a little bit of a cultural uh, thing that I need to carry you back to because in our day and age, the luxury of having light available to us 24 hours a day I think makes this a little more obscure, if I could even say it dims what Paul is saying. Thank you for the three of you who smiled at that. 
Uh, one of the, the early church fathers, the fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, brings out the urgency of the coming day with a reminder of getting up at dawn that characterized most of his generation and even those who preceded. They didn't have electricity and light bulbs. Lamps, candles, yes, they had things like that. So they weren't totally you know, at the mercy of sunrise and sunset. But he wrote, as soon as, it, as soon as it, night is actually departing, we hasten one another and say, it is day now. And we all set about the works of the day, dressing and leaving our dreams and shaking our sleep thoroughly off that the day may find us ready and we may not have to, be, have to begin getting up and stretching ourselves when the sunlight is up. Some of you say, I am not a morning person. You would be if you went to bed when the sun went down. You'd be awake long before dawn. I had a great uncle who farmed for many years, and uh, he actually began uh, toward the tail end of the Depression, really farming with a team of mules. And I, when we would visit my family in Illinois, I would sometimes go stay with him, Uncle Kenneth and Aunt Irma. And uh, Uncle Kenneth was up with daylight. And in eastern Illinois, in the summertime, the sun was coming up at 4.30. And I still remember hearing him knock on my door. You gonna sleep all day? (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm just trying to finish the night. But from his perspective, sun is rising. Like there's chores to be done and work to be tackled. And he would put in a good two hours or more before breakfast. And Aunt Irma, she, you know, typical farmer's wife, it was eggs and bacon or sausage, most of which they had grown and was, you know, straight off of their land. And, um, yeah, that was new for me. But those are some images that come to my mind when Paul is saying, stir yourself out of this sleepy state. There's too much that's coming, Jesus primarily, and there's too much that's happening right now. And spiritually speaking, believers need to be morning people. The dawn hasn't fully come yet. Christ has not made his final appearance. But if you look with faith back toward the eastern sky, light is visible. And look at the signs of the times. Uh, for your encouragement, in, uh, in June, we're going to do a little brief series in equip class uh, on the last things. And that will include a look at some of what God promises in places like Revelation and Thessalonians. So that will be an encouraging time. But Spiritually speaking, we should be mourning people. And we're mourning people because, first of all, by his life, death, and resurrection, Christ has brought a new age, a new kingdom of light. And, and he really is pushing out the kingdom of darkness. He's begun that work in us, he freed us. We're different people than we were before. And yes, the world is still full of evil and there are great spiritual forces at work that are trying to oppose him, but they will not be able to succeed uh, forever. So wake up. The second command, as we press on in this, Paul says, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Here be the second word of exhortation in this little paragraph. Not only wake up, but armor up. Put it on. And what's he saying that we should put on? The armor, or even weapons of light. We personally are people of a different nature and we're called to a different kind of lifestyle. We're called to a different cause. You know, there are two other New Testament passages where Paul refers to spiritual armor. One of them, many of you know well, it's Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. 
right? It says, put on the whole armor of God. It's actually a little different terminology that, that rightfully so would picture all of the pieces of the armor, and Paul names them specifically. What we're looking at in this passage is similar. It would be a synonym, but it, it, it speaks a little more um, offensively, if I can put it that way, like the weapons of our warfare. I think a parallel passage that is helpful is found in 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul, again, writing to a different group of of believers at the church at Corinth says that the weapons, there's our terminology, or the armor of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, we, this, this is one of the things that distinguishes the, the genuine Christian faith from so many other religions. We're not trying to take the world by force. We, we don't find people who are non-Christians and, you know, by threat of death or torture or persecution, recruit them to the cause. We don't manipulate them. And as a matter of fact, what Paul is pointing to in 2 Corinthians, and I think what Romans 13 would touch on, is that the weapons that God has entrusted to us are primarily weapons of truth. And not everybody believes it, but many do. And some of you have gone through that experience even in recent years, where you were once hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You thought it was just the craziest old wives' tale, fairy tale, myth kind of stuff, and then one day the Holy Spirit turned the light onto you, and, and you're reading the word or you're listening to a friend share the truth about Jesus Christ, and you're like, I believe. Like, that seemed crazy yesterday. It seems like the most sensible, reasonable, logical, powerful truth today. Well, there you go. That's because the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not carnal. They're, they're not ordinary in the sense of day-to-day life, but they are divinely powerful. Armor up. Dawn and Jesus are on us. It's coming. Time is short. We need to be people who speak the truth, who live it out. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 13. Let us walk properly. So wake up, armor up, now walk properly. What does it mean to walk properly as in the daytime? Well, walk is a term used all throughout the scriptures just for how you live your life, how you behave. The key word there is properly. That is being a fitting or a becoming manner of behavior. Fitting to what? Well, primarily fitting to Jesus, fitting to truth. He saved you by his grace. He rescued in his great mercy. He forgave all of your sins, gave you a new heart, freed you from uh, bondage to sin, placed his spirit in you, so live accordingly. Walking properly is contrasted, though, with a number of things. Actually, there are three pairs that come on the heels of this, and these would be examples. Again, this is not a comprehensive list, but these are examples of improper living. Now, the first two, orgies and drunkenness, have to do with a kind of lifestyle. And I, I actually, I, I think there might be a little stronger way to translate that first term, orgy, because it's a Greek term that refers to drinking parties that lead to unrestrained behavior. It's a parties, partier's mentality. Hey, we're all getting together Friday night and Saturday night, whatever, so we're gonna get smashed. Isn't that, isn't that kind of ironic? Some of you lived in that before, and it was very appealing to you until Jesus transformed you. I think a lot of people are using alcohol and 
substances to medicate the deep pain, the emptiness. To be left alone with your thoughts is a terrifying prospect. And so if you pour enough alcohol into your system, it dulls the pain. At least for a moment, it, it moves the fear to the outskirts. And Paul is saying this is not proper living for the followers of Jesus to give themselves over to drinking parties. And in the second term, I mean, it's, it's a great translation, drunkenness. You've submitted full control of your faculties, your body, to a foreign substance. That's not proper for believers. Then the second pair, look at this, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. That has to do with an indulgence of both sexual desires and sensual pleasures. These are, it's a pretty comprehensive thing that he's talking about. Why is it improper for believers to give themselves over to this kind of living, the sexual immorality or even the sensuality? Because we're people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, first of all. We're his temple. We're to be a, a walking center of worship, if you will, and we don't worship the false gods of sensuality or immoral sex. We worship the living God. We keep his commandments because we love him. Both words are plural, indicating that Paul likely has in mind categories of sin that would be expressed in many different kinds of activity. It is a heartbreaking thing that our generation has not only lost its, its moorings to the, the truth of how God has created us, yes, as sexual beings, but has so lost connection and, and losing relationship with God that now we're desperately trying to find something meaningful and significant in our sexual practices. And from God's vantage point, it's a perversion of something glorious that he created. And yes, out of love has limited because remember, love doesn't do harm to other people. And so if you engage in multiple relationships with other people who are not your spouse, which is God's design, you bring harm to them and you harm yourself. And I'm confident that some of the the undercurrent of anger and fear and frustration in our culture is directly tied to our sexual immorality. We are a hurting people. And we don't know what to do with it. Well, look at the third pair, not in quarreling and jealousy. These are broad terms again. Quarreling has to do with bitter conflict. It's often heated and uh, bitter dissension. Boy, doesn't that characterize our world today? The second term, jealousy, that's that greedy, prideful longing for what someone else possesses. Even their gifts that come from God, even their abilities that are just part of God's kind and wise creation. And God says this is not the proper way to walk. He desires for us to be living in a different way. So look at verse 14, and he, he brings it all back to Jesus himself. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you put on Jesus? Well, remember, there are some things about salvation that have already been done for us, all right? We are justified. You, if, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, you can't be more justified at this moment than you were uh, at the moment you first believed. That's a legal declaration. And now the Lord comes back to us and says, because you are justified, you, uh, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, pursue your sanctification, be holy, live obedient, uh, obediently, serve others, love others. There are all kinds of commands that go with that. So, so there are the realities 
of our spiritual uh, position with God that have already been secured through his, his gracious work. And then there's another side of it where we aspire to and, and even strive to be what we already are. I know for some of you, you're like, that just sounds a little funny to me. I know, but just meditate on it. Keep thinking it through. And, and when you see it in the scripture, and this is one of those passages, you begin to rejoice in it. All the pressure's off. It's a different set of motivations altogether. Uh, our, our daughter Haley babysits for the Hobbs family, and she told us a, a great story just a couple of weeks ago uh, that she was um, on a particular morning uh, with Ivy, and uh, Haley just began to pick up on the fact that everything she was doing, Ivy was doing. And it even started with like taking her socks off because I think Haley was barefoot, and then Haley took a sweatshirt off, and Ivy wanted to take uh, her sweatshirt off, and Haley would take a sip of her beverage and, and, and Ivy would take a sip of hers and Haley would give a little ah after the drink and she's hearing ah, you know. And I thought as Haley was sharing that, we enjoyed the story immensely and many of you could tell similar stories of little ones who try to imitate. But I thought this week, that really is a bit of a picture on, on this truth. You, you might say that Ivy was putting on Haley. And that's, in a sense, what God is calling us to do. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who we're already united to perfectly, who's already forgiven all of our sins and gifted us perfect righteous, right, righteousness, who's already promised that the work he began, he will be faithful to complete, who's in heaven even now preparing a place for us. There's so much about life that is fully secure. And so he's not saying put on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved or that you might become worthy or that you might become super spiritual. No, he's just saying be like your older brother. Put him on. So we're putting off the works of darkness. We're putting off the old habits of the sinful flesh we're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, and look at the last phrase, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How practical, how poignant that is. What does that mean to make provision? It actually has to do with thinking about and planning for something ahead of time. It's one thing when sin surprises you. You, you genuinely weren't planning to go into that sin, temptation. Uh, the, the Lord described to Cain when he was confronting him in his sin, saying, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to master you. That's true for all of us. It's a whole other thing, though, when, you know, in our secret thoughts, we're kind of like, well, how, how could I do this or go there or even, you know, imbibe in this or pursue that? And we're actually making a plan that's just wholly inconsistent with the life that Jesus has begun to work in us. And when he says flesh, he's talking about those impure desires of the old you, and we all have a set of them. One author writes, this is, this is immensely helpful. This is a man who's with the Lord now. Leon Morris has written some tremendous commentaries and Bible study aids um, through the years that God gave him life and ministry. But listen to how beautifully and simply he puts it. Put into very simple English, Paul is saying, do not plan for sin. Give it no welcome, offer it no opportunity, kick the sin off your doorstep and you won't have it in the house. And sometimes we're a little naive. We want to play with sin like we play with a pet. Oh, if I keep it in the backyard, in the back corner of the backyard, then it'll be okay. No, it's not. Sin will hurt you. 
Sin will devour you. Sin will destroy you. That's the nature of sin. And so Paul is, is wrapping up this little section by saying, don't think about or plan for the desires of your old self to have a place. Aren't you thankful for the Lord Jesus? Aren't you thankful that Christ really has accomplished something spectacular? That it's not just a moral code that he offers you and says, hey, be like me. But he's actually brought you into his life and he has begun a powerful work of transformation, so powerful that it will undo every effect of the fall that our first mother and our first father subjected us to. When Christ and all that he has done for you is the consuming meditation of your heart and mind, and when you are daily awed by the mercy he has shown to you in the cross specifically, but even flowing from the cross, when you and I are continually amazed by his grace that he lavishly poured out on us even though we once were enslaved to sin and hostile to him, when you and I are reveling in this undeserved love of his and grasping the unbelievable privilege and power of loving others, then in one respect, we're not gonna have much time left or energy for thinking about and planning for the fulfillment of our sinful desires. So what occupies the greatest bandwidth of your soul's attention today? What are you meditating on? What are you thinking about? Even in this command to love one another, the Lord's trying to push you and me into a whole new realm. And some of us, like those little kids, are, poke, are, are focusing on the fact that God said, don't poke your brother. And it's not about not poking. It's about learning to love your brother. And some of you are even still just mired down in hard memories from the past and you feel like, but I, but I sinned. I, I know God says he'll forgive me, but I still feel like I need to work some of that off or pay my way out of it. No, stop. Live in the freedom and fullness of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. 